Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. I'm um, I'm so excited to talk to you here in the middle of COVID because um, you have, you've been doing all kinds of um, amazing things growing your business over the past couple mm-hmm. of years. And um, in particular, you have been um, um, at this selling online thing for a while. And so mm-hmm. I thought, wow, I need to get mad on the show given um, what's the, the, well, the state of affairs with distribution right now. Um, yeah, you are a great lesson um, for a lot of people. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. And any lessons I can bring to the table that be probably distributable and valuable, I'd be happy to. Of course. Yeah. So Matt, why don't you start by introducing yourself and your business? Sure. Um, I'm Matthew Starr. I'm the founder and director of operations at Rally Energy. We are primarily a caffeinated mint company out of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, We sell our mints in little packs that look like batteries that are sold at point of sale typically at retail. We also sell a bunch online. Um, we have peppermint and cinnamon flavor. Uh, cinnamon was released last year, and we are um, just released actually caffeinated cough lozenges, which was pre-COVID planned. Uh, huh. So, just interesting that the world's in the like largest upper respiratory outbreak ever, and we have caffeinated cough lozenges. Um, we changed the pitch a little bit on it, but it it seems still to land pretty well. So. Uh, we started out of Madison in 2014. That's when we started the company. Um, we first sold into a few retail stores in 2016, in 2016. And since then, we've just been testing, creating milestones. If we achieve them, you know, making educated, tactical decisions to grow again, uh, at least doubling every year in our in our sales, and at least reducing our cost by 20% or so every year or more every year. Uh, to kind of feed our business with cash flow, as you know, you early yeah. early on taught me. Uh, you know, you can't just it. Everything costs money before you're selling it and you get paid. So you really got to work on your costs. You got to figure out your supply chain and go. And um, an early part of that, since I was a, a student at the time in 2014 when we started the company, you know, I was no stranger to the internet at all. But um, it was a strategic decision early on whether we emphasize selling online or whether we emphasize selling in retail. And actually, in 2014, the strategic decision was to sell into retail and not online, as there were a few other players trying to sell online and doing a better job than I thought we could bring to the table at the time. And since, honestly, there's limited time and to be able to focus on anything and do it really, really well, which is really, really important for a small company, uh, I thought we could do retail better than anyone else is doing it, since no one else is doing it. Um, and that changed. Well, that, that is still true, I think. Uh, but we, as of uh, three years ago, uh, so end of 2017, begin 2018, we began to uh, push a bit more on direct-to-consumer through our website sales, um, experimenting with some marketing, but then also you know, signing up for Amazon and Jet and everything that you could under the moon at the time um, for consumer marketplace uh, type of businesses to get, to get to the consumer wherever they are, because that's very important to be omni-channel these days. And um, in the very beginning, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, 
as is the case always, <laughs> I think. Right, so, right. And if you think you know what you're doing, then you probably learned it from the other thing that you're saying is not when you really started. So right, uh, we right. really had no idea what we were doing at the 2017, 2018, you know, we basically went from approximately zero to, you know, approximately, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars um, a month or something like that. And then 2019 went to a few thousand dollars a month. And then we just kept growing that by significant amount but my um at this point we were almost at like 10k or so a month um going into 2020 just for online and that then ended up being about half of our business at the end of the year going into 2020 um and that was our and so now that ended up being our plan was to grow them both both channels uh consistently for the next few years as you would know um in retail, so for consumer products, as we have to buy at least minimum orders and there's batch sizes and things along those lines, it uh, makes sense that we try to aggregate as many sales as we can at once so that we can purchase things uh, economically and drive down our costs. Um, the cool thing about online sales is you can you basically have a dashboard that you can toggle up and down your sales as you wish uh, on a daily da- on a daily basis. So depending on how much inventory we need to have on hand, let's say for store orders that are coming in, we can increase or decrease our online sales. Whereas if you're trying to plan and sell and reduce COGS for retail sales, you you typically are doing things in a very disjointed, you know, today you're in 20 stores, tomorrow you're in like 60 stores, you know, and then you go with that for a while and make sure that those are good customers and you weed out the ones that aren't. And then you aren't in like 62 stores, 63 stores, you're in then, 80 stores or 150 stores, you know, things jump wildly and it becomes much more difficult to manage your inventory, um, which is something that we came really good at because that's where we were initially focusing. But one of the reasons why moving forward, we want half of our, at least half of our business to be online is it really gives us this kind of pressure relief valve for how we're handling cash flow and our inventory all the time, which is very nice. Yeah, so there's so much to unpack in what you just talked about. It's awesome. So um, <clears throat> so one of the things that I've always um, I've always loved working with you is that you have this um, are you, you're an engineer by background, right? Am I wrong? Yeah, I'm a material that? science that's engineer what I and yeah. I was so, a student uh, in the PhD program. That's what I thought. So you have this instinct to quantify things as a business leader, which is so helpful that and I think other people, um, entrepreneurs don't kind of come at it that way. So your idea like about, uh, okay, we're going to be 50 50, you know, online and versus not online. It's like you set quantitative goals for yourself. And you have done this over the over the course of growing your business. And because you've done that, it's really helped you guide the growth of your business, I think. I totally agree. I I um have worked with a lot of other young companies. I'm a very young company, right? But I've worked with right. a lot of other young companies and I understand the hesitation early on to set quantitative goals. I also on some level experience the same type of hesitation. However, given my academic background, um, but also given my experience with Rally, setting quantitative goals, it's some sort of weird feedback loop for human nature, but you you do, somehow you make them happen as, as, you, as you can. It's amazing. You know, you'll be like, I'm, I'm 20% below where I should be. And then you are just putting more lines in the water to make those opportunities come 
come up for you in the business. And then you'll find that at the end of the year, you're hitting it again. So yeah, we, we do hit our goals year after year as our sixth year. And, uh, it's kind of, it's almost comical to have it plotted out, which of course we do and go, yeah, it's just <laughs> of it's basically do, right? there. It's yeah. right there. It's where it's supposed uh, to be. And then, and sometimes we exceed them, you know, because you get lucky or something. But the most important thing is, um, you, we try to keep the baseline as close to possible as the goal. So then when the random fluctuations happen, they're, they're helping you, you know, achieve maybe right. extra cash for you to figure out what to invest in a new product or a new way of doing your manufacturing or whatever, you know, or you share it downstream and everyone more, or you pass it on to the customer with more promotions for a month or something. But yeah, quantifying, there's a lot of hesitation that I found out there as well. It's, I think again, on a purely emotional level, I feel that friction when I think about it, because there's so many unknowns about the future. Mm -hmm. You can try to plot out, but I think at least with certain personalities, quantifying your goals, that are reasonable but stretchy, but still reasonable, at least based on right. past experience or some degree of competency in the market and manufacturing operations, it is something to hold you to and something to make you feel bad about when you're not doing well or hitting those goals week after week. And you just you just know. It's like I think all your cut as soon as you start your own company, everyone else is your boss because suddenly right. you're trying to sell that like all your customers. So suddenly instead of having one boss or three bosses every customer you have is your boss. So I think right. that, that's completely blown out of the water, that, expect, that expectation. But what they don't, what, the, what your customers don't give you is a revenue goal. <laughs> they give right. you like a price they wish they could pay maybe, or like product attributes they wish that the product had or something like that. But they don't say, Hey, this is what we want to hit at the end of the month, you know? Right. And so I think because of that, some people who run companies tend to, if things aren't going well, they get in kind of a lull and say, well, I guess I'll just, reconfigure my business plan for the next 12 months to be not that great. And sometimes you need to do that. But I think more times than not, if you had really gone in with quantitative goals based, you know, reflections or reverberations off of reality, you could hold your, that becomes like your boss. Yeah, no. And it, and it, um, it's, the other thing it helps with is getting a financial plan together. You know, people find it really hard to get a financial plan and then they have a hard time raising money to it um, because they don't have the plan. So there, there are just so many layers that, that spin around this idea of quantifying your goals. It's, and you, you've been so good at this um, as you've grown your company. Um, it's it's crazy right now um, because of what's going on with COVID. Are you what is it doing with your business? Are you are you are you on the up? You know, it feels like it's it's you're either on one side or the other. Business is way up or it's or it's um, atrophying. It's all over the place. I'm still trying to get a handle on it. Yeah. Every, as I said, we quantify things, we track them. Mm -hmm. All the accounts have shifted where they are. Some uh -huh. up, some down them up then down as policies are changing and it's very hard for me to get a good feeling on what's going on across mm -hmm. the board on average we are down mm -hmm. in some places large okay, so like small convenience and gas station depending on where they are they're very down yeah, that would make large sense. grocery is up um large grocery and blue collar locations are up mm -hmm. uh which maybe makes sense for them being more essential workers mm -hmm. and so them working and being there more frequently. Um, and then online was initially, it's a roller coaster, up, then down, then up, then down, and now curving back up again. It's, it's crazy what's going on right now. And I, I think that's a little bit of 
people's initial shock to what's going on and just spending more money online. So there's like a mm-hmm. river and the current just got stronger and everything went with it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a sense of uncertainty in the market across the board as, for example, the president said stay-at-home orders across the board. So everyone got freaked out and mm-hmm. essentials went way up. But I think some other things took a shock, which also makes sense. You know this in your own spending habits, right? I've been experienced this in my own spending habits. So that's another thing. I try to look at my data and go, it's pretty consistent with my own spending habits, though. So I can't blame anyone else on what's going on. And then as talk about um, financial easing you know, was going on and people saying that the government was going to lean in and be a help to the average worker, things started going up again. And then um, we've actually seen, I'm looking at it right now, we've seen um, this increase for the past two weeks of good customer acquisition costs. So so our customer acquisition costs going down, which means we're being more efficient with our marketing, but also people spending, being more willing to spend more and looking to spend more on things like Rally and their cap mm-hmm. maintenance. Mm-hmm. So it's really a roller coaster. It definitely depends geographically what's going on. Demographically, right. it depends on whether stores sell just a few things or a bunch of things. So people are definitely trying to reduce their trip load, you know, and that mm-hmm. means fewer trips places that have more we definitely see that on the accounts and then online because online is so broad i think you're just mm-hmm. capturing basically you're capturing like the zeitgeist of people's anxiety on what's going on right. across the board for e-commerce yeah yeah isn't that crazy so again because you quantify things you know this right it's not a mystery and i think i think what's um, and you're a small company still, right? And yeah, I think right. people tend to, to, especially food entrepreneurs, maybe not tech entrepreneurs, but food entrepreneurs will, will be like, well, I'll, you know, I'll get there someday, but right now I'm too young, I'm too little, and I'm not going to do that kind of, I'm not going to, it's not possible for me to have that kind of market intelligence to know, right? And mm-hmm. And that's um, usually the wrong answer if you want to successfully grow your food brand. So, uh, so yeah. So, are your cough drops doing well? Our cough lozenges, yeah. The demand yeah. for them is good. The demand for them is good. We don't know enough about repeat buyers yet. We had okay. entered the market at the beginning of this month. Uh, okay. So we don't know yet about how that will turn out. We know because the, the category itself. This is one of the situations where we're all caught in the stream. Right. Um, okay, so I'm data driven, so I'm just going to lay it all on the on the table. So if I see uh, initial, you know, so I try not to base too much off initial sales. Um, even what you had said, there's so much to unpack just there. Uh, so so right. initial sales. What does that tell me? It tells me your packaging is good, and the category is interesting, and people are looking into the category because that's yeah. all that initial sales can tell you. And that's actually a big lesson I try to tell people who get into uh, CPG, and whether it's actually you know, pictures and products online or whether it's in retail. If they don't sell any product, and I ask them what they think that means, almost unanimously the response is, you know, I need to change my product because it's not good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, you didn't sell any. How do you know it's not good? All I know is your packaging is awful or your messaging is awful or like the right. category. No one's going to that place in the store, so your positioning is awful. That's all that no initial sales tell me, right? You haven't mm-hmm. even gotten the customer experience to know. So I'm very curious. We do uh, load up our cough lozenges. Um, Sorry, we load up like our packages so that it's not something that's depleted in two seconds. We try to offer a lot of value in everything we do. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our, our packs of mints have 10 servings, you know, things like that. Each one's uh, an espresso shot worth of caffeine in every mint. So it's not one of those one and done situations. Repeat customers tend to come back every three or four weeks situation. 
Mm-hmm. So I cannot tell you competently with a straight face what the end result of the cough lozenges will be. Right. Yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident in the category because, well, the category doesn't really exist. So I mean, cough lozenges exist. No one is marketing in these stores at all caffeine and cough lozenges. Right. So I think it's an interesting place where I don't expect 99% of the people to buy caffeine and cough lozenges. I expect there to be a demographic of people. It could be like 6% or whatever who buy cough lozenges, mm-hmm. who that will resonate with anyway, and who are not being served at all in this, in this category. And then I think there will be a spillover in you know, the second ring of the bullseye that are people who go, yeah, 90% of the time, I just want like the cherry cough lozenge or whatever. But it is true that sometimes when I'm sick, I then want to go out to whatever, name it like the concert or whatever at night. And I don't want to be coughing in people's faces. And so a caffeinated cough lozenge after work so I can go to a concert makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. That was like the old fashioned logic that we're going after. It'll be really interesting to see in this world of the COVID basically for the next nine to 12 months what ends up happening. But right. I, I think for as a company, what I really like about this, what I like about driving this product and driving this company is it's consistent with our goals of meeting needs with sort of innovative tactical solutions that are convenient to carry around that aren't really being met in a, in this really convenient way. So our mints, they're not just caffeine, like another form of caffeine. When you consume a caffeinated mint, you get the caffeine through your, through like the linings in your mouth faster than you ever would if you're drinking a liquid. Which for some people, you might go, oh, that's not what I want. I want like a very slow, gradual, over 45 minutes, an hour rise. To other people who are driving and tired, you just want to get home safe and you want to pop a mint. Or if you're working on a project at night and you're so tired, you know you're messing up, you just want to pop a mint and get your caffeine right away and like be awake to do your project. So we found you know, that, I'm, that we're delivering on a need. That's the number one thing people like about our project. It delivers quickly the caffeine kick. 100%. And then after that, it's super convenient. It's multi-serving, so there's good value. But we're, we're delivering on that. Did you launch um, into both um, conventional retail and online at the same time? So we initially did pre-testing. Our, you know, with our cough lozenges, the testing initially happened just through online. Mm-hmm. As retail was a little... At the time, we had learned, okay, we weren't, we weren't sure what our packaging was going to be 100% yet. And so mm-hmm. we could send, we could we could contact our loyal customers online and ask them if they wanted to try some caffeine cough lozenges of various flavors and get feedback and that was really good and we can't really do that very well in retail but as we got our retail packaging in line um, and we were testing in stores like here, here's our retail packaging uh, we had category the people in the store who managed those categories they were interested in the packaging so they were initially pulling on us to deliver this new SKU, which is interesting and we like to hear, um, into this category faster than we expected. Mm-hmm. We, were, we, were, we, we went into this thinking we would do online first, maybe do it for a couple months first, you know, this pre-COVID, of course, as we kind of got everything in line, made sure we had figured out all the efficiencies we could get with operations. And then um, we work in stores. And just when we had gone to stores, it's not the way it ended up happening. Stores were right. interested as quickly as online was. I think that more to do with it being like a novel product and it having interesting packaging and just kind of delivering in a way that they could see other products weren't delivering. Mm-hmm. Whereas historically, I wouldn't recommend that. Again, from a data standpoint, I, I think that really messes things. It divides your attention. Um, you never know if your packaging is good enough. And online, you can always make packaging. Our, our battery packaging looks amazing. 
in retail. That's where we designed it. So of course it looks also amazing online. Um, but there are plenty of people whose real life packaging is awful, but they make it look great online, which is one of the right. advantages of, of digital marketing and, and digital retail. And um, we just, so I, I recommend to people typically that they don't pursue both simultaneously. It just splits your attention. You're going to need to focus on packaging in retail in a different way than you need to focus it online. But uh, that's just not the way it ended up landing for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were doing a try. You were doing trials with retailers, though, to test your product in the beginning. Oh, we would uh, go into stores. By that, I mean this is all as of last month, right? So we would go yeah. into stores, and well, the testing of the initial packaging was of the past like two and a half months now. Okay. But we would go into stores with um, prototypes of our packaging, the same things we did for our batteries. To be one hundred percent honest, we go into uh, stores with prototypes of our packaging. I would go to the aisles that were relevant. I would find an empty hook, for example, for cough lozenges. Typically, it's a hook on a wall. Yeah. And I would find an empty hook, and then I'd load them up with our packages that have printed, you know, our, our prototype packages. And then i stand back and just watch mm-hmm. and see what happens. And you sit there for two to three hours, and you watch as people walk up. You see what they do with all the packaging. They walk away. They come up. They touch your product. You know, they walk away. If someone comes up and they want to put it in their bag, you walk up and say, like, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Um, that's not the product you can buy right now. You know, so we were doing that before we could legally sell a product. We were mm. testing live in stores, which is the same thing I recommend, honestly, across the board. Anyone who's yeah. doing CPG in, in retail do. I hear a lot of people refining to the nth degree their packaging and product in you know, on their computer at home, or they make it look amazing when it's on their counter, you know, in their kitchen or something. Mm-hmm. I'm going, but what, what are the cans that are next to your can? Or what's the mm-hmm. display that's next to your display or whatever? And you, or what's the lighting in the store? Is this back in the shelf? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I recommend everyone, as soon as you have a product, you are, you think a product design that you think is a little on the path to success. Do you think it has some key features that you don't want to change for whatever key, you know, whatever key reasons you think those are as, a, as someone running your company? I suggest you take that to a store, whether it's a really friendly store that has done sales with you in the past or one that's agreed to pre-order your product or one that doesn't currently buy your product, but you know they're really large and friendly. You just walk in there and you put it on the shelf and you stand back and look at it. Take pictures. Take pictures from a bunch of angles. Um, stand back and watch as people completely ignore your packaging, which is what 99% of the time is going to happen, right? Everyone just, mm-hmm. no one cares about your product. The world was fine before it was there. And you just go, wow, no one cares about this. How do mm-hmm. I make someone care? Pre-commerce. So the equivalent for e-commerce is very interesting. You should, you know, of course, go to Amazon or Etsy or eBay or something. And, and now there's a bunch of other sites like uh, uh, Hubba and Tundra and Fair. And go and type in your product category. Go see all the little pictures, the little, you know, thumbnails basically of all these products that are pitching at least for your keywords that you just typed in that you want your product to come up as and look at them and go, okay, this is the equivalent of the aisle. A lot of them have this background or these colors. Is that something I want or is that something I don't want with my product? Why do they have this? Why don't they have this? You know, because when my product appears, a little thumbnail, do I want it to disappear or not? So when you, um, I, I guess let's let's start with um, when you started in e-commerce, and then we can kind of weave into this how that might be different these days because there are just more uh, there are more ways to begin your e-commerce you know journey, and mm-hmm. I, I say that because I think you I think you said already that you started um, 
focusing on your own website sales on your own website, which is, I think, mm -hmm. what most people tend to want to do. And in fact, that may, you know, I don't know. And most people I work with, they start out that way, then they get on other platforms and they realize that 95% of what they do is on other platforms and a small percent <laughs> is their own website. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> All day, completely. Uh, now, the, you know, that is true. For various companies, it's not true. Yeah, Just there are companies. Speaking, I, I are have a couple of of amazing examples where that's not true, but it, they're they're um, they're the exception to the rule, if that makes sense. Yeah. So then there's all these things. That's so much to unpack there. So let's go through that a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's do it. We, let's 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 say there's you know there is a uh, I'd say there's a silver bullet. So everyone should kind of know the silver bullet of what they want of like an ideal solution or an ideal circumstance that they wish occurred. And then, so that's kind of what you hold up, you know, on a pedestal. And then everything else is you either trying to get there or just the realities of, you know, the environment, what's going on. So ideally, you know, you are a manufacturer of goods. You have intellectual property on your goods. You have spent your time and money and savings creating a product or service that you think is really valuable. And you want to capture as much excess, value is, is created by the innovation as possible. So that would mean you dealing directly with consumers and every middleman, in quotes here, middleman, marketplaces, retail stores, brokers, whatever it be, um, not really existing in that supply chain. That is sort of like a silver bullet situation for a company. That is, upon you know, actual execution, someone might realize if that were the reality, your consumer, your, your customer service the number of people you'd have to have on customer service would be extraordinary. <laughs> You're like, I want 10,000. Right. You know, if, if I was dealing directly with every customer who's buying at retail locations online, I mean, I don't, I, I already get some wacky, interesting, you know, fascinating calls and, and voicemails. And I just, I can't quite imagine what that would really land like if they all were dealing directly with me all the time. So you know, there is a reality there that we're not really uh, right. not measuring exactly. But but ideally, from a value capture point of view, and then being able to use that to feed back into the loop and create more value with new products and new innovations and serving more customers, that there's you know an idealized on pedestal idea there concept there. In reality, customers that would mean probably today they're coming direct to you through online uh, website doing a transaction with you know Stripe or someone else, and then you shipping the product directly. That's like the most amazing direct that you could possibly do. Again, the operations standpoint of that is impossible. Like you, if I was serving all these customers and shipping them directly, I would just be shipping orders. Every, I wouldn't be having a podcast right now. I'd just be, I am too busy filling up envelopes with, you know, batteries. I can't do it. Right. So clearly the pedestal idea is impractical. That's good to know. Cause sometimes it's not, but it is impractical to actually do fulfillment that way to do customer service that way and everything else. So there's all these, and the, and, the, and the market knows that, right? The, the economy knows that. That's why we built these other things to help function this way. Because as your business is growing, you know, you know I, I can't do fulfillment anymore. I need to hire other people to help me do fulfillment. Well, good. Those people exist. You know, and, and oh, good. I, I can't handle customer service all the time. I need to work with other sellers who also handle customer service. That's, that's great. That's why retail locations and stores exist and, and marketplaces exist. So um, in practice, I think it's great to start with a website of your own for the following reason. It, it gets you to usually button up what you think your brand is going to be or puts pretty 
a flat face on the fact that you don't know what your brand is, right? If you're like, I know what my brand right. is, and you create a website and it looks like nothing, you have no brand. And everyone knows right. you have no brand. And, and all the talk you're doing means nothing. So it really makes you, it's like a conversation, a website is like a conversation with yourself, the one that you own, going, mm-hmm. is this the company I want to be? Is this the, a buyer, when I give it to a buyer down the, down the line, they're going to look at my website. Everyone looks at your website, it's basically like a business card. Um, and they're going to look at this and go, what does this company want to be? They had no more control. They'll never have more control over anything else than they do over their own website, virtually speaking. So you, know, you don't control what customers post about your product or whatever's going on online. But you have control of your own website. So if you have a bad website or you have, have things stated on your website that you say later isn't part of your brand, I mean, that's, you know, that's BS. Everyone knows that that's what you mean to do. And if you don't have anything on your website that seems to stand for anything, then that's also what you mean to do. And if you as a business, and this is, again, why I encourage people to actually create their websites early on, is because it gets you to at least look at your own business and the way you want to run your business and go, do I have any of this stuff figured out, actually? It doesn't mean the answer is yes, by the way. That's why I tell people all the time. I always tell people get nervous so they don't answer a question. Like, it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. Like, no one knows all the answers to all the questions that are going to be coming down the line in business, ever. But you need to know what you don't know. That's, like, really, really important. If, if you don't know your P&L, I don't want you to pretend you know your P&L. You know, if you don't know your COG, I don't want you to pretend you know your cause, and then when it comes time to, to tell someone who really matters, like the bank, you don't know, that's important for us to know. If you think you know your, your brand, or you tell people you do, and you aren't able to consistently point to two or three things that are that you created, you know, that, that highlight that brand, that's a problem. And there's no other better place to do that than on your own website. <laughs> I feel like I wandered around, but feel free to yeah. yell at me. Yeah, no, 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 this is good. So different platforms are, are looking for um, different, uh, let's see, because the, the consumer that goes to these different platforms is di- going to, to them for different reasons. And they're and in some cases, they're different people. Um, you have to figure out, this is a key to figuring out, like, who's your target market and what which one of these platforms are they going to be on beyond your own website? Because as... You know, I, I love your insight that when you create your website, you're creating, it, it's a conversation with yourself. That's a wonderful metaphor about what your company is and what it stands for. Um, but then it's also, who's your target consumer and what platform are gonna, they going to be on? And are they, I mean, are they going to find your website, right? Like mm-hmm. when when I did Tara's Way, we had, we sold online. Now this was like, remember, this is 2009 and Amazon was just starting to sell food. So it was, it was, and I was doing a supplement product, which was more likely to be sold online at the time. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't know what we were doing. As, as you said, like you start these things, you have no idea what you're doing. We had no idea what we're doing and we put it up on our website and you know uh, by the we sold the company it was like 0.01 percent of our sales like it, it was a ridiculously low number and it was because we didn't put any time and energy and focus and we didn't know what we were doing right so fast forward now there there's much more activity online but now there are all these other platforms and nobody knows where to go like where should i take my brand so what do you tell people about that that is so that's such a great point and there's so much to unpack there so let's even just go on that journey a little bit from then to today yeah Um, you know if you were if you had a I'm going to be careful. So there's a product and there's a brand, right? That yeah. They're different. 
So if you were doing um, e-commerce the product, it's a question. In, okay, so if you're doing this with a product in like in the shoot in the, in the early 2000s, late 2000s, um, like 10-ish, you mm-hmm. still cared. You, so if people were going to find you online, they're going to do it via Google. Basically, it's how people still would find you online. Yeah. And and um, in that case, people are trying to figure out well, why, especially in a place like supplements where the margin is what it is and a lot, so much goes to marketing spend and all these other things, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be paying a lot of money to try to have, to, to come up more prominently in searches. And so how would you in that time become, drive your discovery? So all these things, when you're on, uh, uh, on any platform, you really care about discovery, which we can get into totally. Um, but basically, how is a customer who, who might be interested in my product or is interested in a product in my category, how do they find my product, right? right? And there are all these techniques for SEO, and everyone's pitching SEO, you know, and people still pitch SEO, surprisingly enough, but uh, for doing this, and some of it was, okay, we'll create a blog on your website. If you create a blog on your website and you have daily posts or weekly posts on your blog, then especially if you link out from those posts to other websites, and that's how Google and other search engines are ranking the website, the little blue links that are popping up when people search. And this is a very relevant, a very, let's say, like easy way, easy in quotes here because it's work, but it's something that theoretically an individual can do without too much training. It's an easy way to get, to increase your discovery online and be someone who is more likely to get people to come direct to their website. I think that has come a lot out of favor in the past 10 years, maybe 15 years even, where like no one goes for a product I don't think anyone, just being honest, with the power of e-commerce platforms today, goes to a website to purchase and goes and looks like the blog necessarily on that website to learn about what what is caffeine doing for people today, like in my category. Right, right? Like what are, what right. is caffeine doing for people today? And you'll still hear this kind of advice from people who had uh, previous experience in SEO who haven't necessarily kept up with everything. But just that's not consumer behavior anymore. That might actually still kind of help with SEO, but it doesn't. I don't think anyone's actually clicked on those links or cares, to be honest. Right. Because I, I haven't seen anyone that actually does or does. You know, when you, when you mm-hmm. ask people, no one cares. There right. are places people go for blogs on topics like that, but they're not usually that a product, an e-commerce website blog. They would right. go to an aggreg- aggregating blog website that covers different topics and is relevant to them, and they feel like it might be a little less biased, but also they can just go to as a routine to discover information they think is relevant to them. It's not your website. Right. Now, if you were, you know, I think about your product, and I'm just going to kind of use it in a feature just here and then grow it to 2020 and us. If you were thinking about your product and trying to bring more people to it through your website, again, because the margin's higher, theoretically, you have more customer data, you can do more upselling in the future, or just know that you are going to be creating more products that are relevant to that demographic. So why, why pay Google again to find that customer again? Um, the branding aspect here is very significant. So, as a brand, what can you, you know, that's connecting with someone beyond a product, right? So if someone comes to your website, if you're selling a product for your product, they do the transaction, they leave. Why would they come back or care about being on your newsletter? It's because you're creating content and more products they know resonate with them in their lives. So if you're, if you, you know, cares away at the time in like 10 years ago, is focusing on e-commerce branding, which I'm sure with everything that was going on was not top of your top of your mind, you know, right, what was going on right. at that point. Um, but if it was, you'd go, okay, every time someone buys from us, 
we can, of course, send out an email newsletter about here are the tastiest protein shakes you can make, you know, that are healthy and nutritious, organic and natural. Here's why natural and organic without uh, steroids or steroids or steroid free, um, you know, is very important for us. And that might have resonated more strongly. Now, that's outside of product, right? That is this more lifestyle branding picture. So, and the reason why I'm, I'm perseverating on this a little bit is because I know individuals who come into building a business thinking they want to create a brand, not a product. Right. And then your logic on what you're doing is totally, you're, the time that you dedicate to certain tasks can be dramatically changed based on what your end goal is as a human for creating your company. And if it is a brand that's serving people's lifestyle, well, then selling one-off products transactions on Amazon, for example, is not your is not a good way to serve that goal. Right? If right. in that package that you sell, you are able to give life tips that are relevant to your brand and help them connect with things that are consistent with your brand goals, that's that's a way of trying to get in there. But if you were saying, I want to create a brand that's very important to me about, you know, nurturing this um, lifestyle I think it's better for the world, better for the environment, better for my children, my grandchildren. And then you end up realizing in two years, you are basically have everything you know, fulfilled by manufactured by partners, fulfilled by partners, and you are never talking to your customers. It's right. very likely you're going to leave that business because you don't, you realize you weren't fulfilling your own mission. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and that, so I want to, when you talk about which platforms to go on or how to emphasize them, um, that I think that understanding the person who's building their business and their goals, is an important component there because if it was building a brand, having a direct to consumer relationship is the m- most valuable thing in a, in a, in a compounding way. It's the most valuable thing, not just a what's your margin per transaction kind of way in the habitual, let's change the world through changing behavior because this is what matters kind of way. That's the best mm-hmm. thing you probably could do. And all of your, every platform you sell on should try to point back to that in mm-hmm. some way, as importantly as possible. In the, um, right now in food, the last data I saw was that Amazon, of the total amount of food sold online, Amazon constituted something like 56%. So when, I, when people tell me, well, I'm gonna sell my food on my website, and I'm like, oh, or they're, they're thinking, um, other platforms because um, they don't like Amazon. I'm like, okay, so you just took 56% and it depends on the category too, but you, you basically took half of the market and you said, be, for some reason, you're not gonna participate in it, right? It doesn't make sense. It, there's, like, there's so much there to unpack, as there are with all these things. So I've, yeah, so that is the biggest stream and even us saying this on the podcast means that it will get even bigger because that's the nature of a lot of these, these systems. That is the biggest dream where people are going to buy. And mm-hmm. if you are not there, but your competition is, then you're just, and it's very complicated, but basically your competition, even if they're there, they're probably spending marketing spend and they're yeah. probably still making a lot of, hopefully making a significant amount of margin doing it as a business operating on Amazon. And, if you aren't even there, it's just raining customers on them and money on them for free. You right. just being there, hardly doing anything in marketing, is just you, you know, the table stakes to go, hey, 
you don't get customers for free. I'm here too, right? I'm right. going to get some customers too. And right. it's never, you know, to be super successful on Amazon is never going to be as simple as that. And things are changing every two weeks. It's insane. But just, I think whenever, uh, one of the things I want to back out here is the, the number of ways to run a business, it's equal to the number of businesses there are and people running those businesses. There are a bazillion right. ways of running a business. And I, I like to be sensitive to that every time. Because you can have these conversations and then someone I know just feels very strongly that they never want to sell on Amazon, right? right. And you go, okay, okay, I hear you. I can't convince you to do something that you just do not want to do if it's your business. But one of the ways in which I found it to be effective to convince people to do something is you know, if, if, there, if, you, if there are people buying on these platforms and none, no one in your category is there, okay, it's like not a problem for right. you. you. I mean, competition-wise, you don't have to think about like a problem. If right. any of the, you know, the Nash equilibrium, if any of your competition say, yeah, I'll set up an account and post some pictures, even if they're bad pictures, at least they're there. And, you know, this is a hypothetical right. example where no one's selling that product. They're just getting free sales for nothing. It was the lowest amount of energy they had to put in to get free right. sales for nothing. And those could, and I'm not going to pretend it's five minutes of work, but let's just say like relatively it's like two days of work for you to be present, be present. Why? Okay. So then that your competition, if you want to operate this way, this capitalist society that we have, so your competition is now getting free margin because you're not competing and none of them are, none of their competition is competing from a channel that you're not competing with. They take that margin, decrease all their costs or increase their marketing spend off platform. And now suddenly you, more of your customers are flocking to them because they're able to get more of their message out because they got more margin elsewhere or the prices are lower. So people also care about that and they're going after the price game. Right. As soon so as you realize that that's you, the way it operates. So it's you impacting your that. sales in other channels, right? Because you're allowing them to have this strength on Amazon because you chose not to participate, right? Essentially. Truly. Yeah. Truly. And, and, and that game is just played ad infinitum in a capitalist society. So, and that's kind of like, I think it's baked in and that's the point of the whole thing is like everyone is just, it makes the businesses supposedly run as fast as possible all the time to be right. doing as much as possible. But I think, you know, there are people who go, that's not something I'm going to do. You know, okay. If you feel that in your core, that's you running your business. There are people who go, I just don't think I want to do that as my business right now. You know, they say it kind of casually. And for a moment I want to go, well, what if your competition across the street or, you know, your competition online reduced their prices by 20%. How would you feel about that? And then we go, that'd be devastating. I mean, that's below cost for manufacturing for if they did that. Like, okay. If they're operating in a channel that you have no access to and they are just getting found money from that channel, they can do anything they want with that profit, including reduce their cogs or not reduce their cogs, but reduce like their margin on these other channels mm-hmm. so that you can't compete. And then you have a choice. Now, they've t- you won't even know that until it's too late. So you'll, they'll have already been taking your customers. So you're already, now you're chasing them. So if you don't know how to do that thing, you decide not to do it. Your competition gets ahead of you and starts doing it, and they use that margin to compete with you. It might seem unfair, but that's just how this market's working. And now you have to respond. You respond by either upselling your brand even harder by not, you know, if you don't change anything else, you better upsell your brand even harder, or try to differentiate yourself, but you know, in some new way. But if it's a way that you weren't planning on before, it's not like that's a more ethical, moral way of executing your business. You know, if you're being forced to change the value proposition of your product when you weren't planning to, it doesn't, I don't think that's the moral high ground either. So um, that's the way that usually from a 
standpoint, I like to look at it because I think it drives more people to action, you know? Right. So let's, let's, um, so we're a brand. So, so imagine how about we do it with Tara's way. Imagine Tara's way. I, I, I'm, I'm launching it right now. Right. And it's a, it's, I'm trying to figure out where to go online. My thing would be, yep. I need my website. Yep. I need to be on Amazon, um, because it's half of the market and, then, then where do I go? Like, and, and Tara's Way has got a rich brand, right? That brand is very resonant mm-hmm. with consumers. The people who own the brand of um, last year, I saw them at a trade show and they said, you didn't just create a brand, you created a cult. Like your, your <laughs> customers are so loyal to this brand. Um, so like, so with a brand like that, what on online, what platforms do you think would work? Like what should, should a company be looking at if they have a rich brand like that what a and great it's a question. lifestyle brand. And let me like really try to take that seriously in the sense of you were early mover in that space, like so much respect to what you were trying, the messages you're trying to push yeah. and the brand you're trying to push. And so if you were creating the equivalent today um, even if there was some competition in it, let's say, because it's like hard to find totally naked places in the, on the internet. But if you were just trying to mm-hmm. do something very competent today, I would say for that kind of brand, for, for that kind of business, <clears throat> social media marketing and influencers, for specifically, we're going after like protein in that case. You know, just to be mm-hmm. honest. Like, so, like people, so for social media influencers who are really resonant with that lifestyle and that's not just healthy lifestyle like one of the reasons why people say you know healthy life why they pitch themselves as a lifestyle um influencer and be like healthy lifestyle is because that's so broad that they feel like it applies to everybody but then again if you if you're so broad you don't really speak for anybody at the same time right. you're just pitching healthy-ish stuff and not everyone mm-hmm. can buy it if you're pitching a new product every day people aren't going to buy 365 new products every year of different different brands so I would say really, really go in. Um, there's actually an equivalent to this from like 10 years ago, which is you would really try to find the blog 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, no, example. it was the mommy bloggers at the time. Absolutely. Who would, yeah, no, and it was so funny because they were just emerging and they were, I'd get these calls from these people and I was like, what the hell is she wanting me to do? Like, I couldn't even figure <laughs> it out. Like, because there was no business model for it at the time. It was hysterical. Um, but yeah, no, that, so, so yeah, we have to talk about promotion too. So they're platforms and then promotion if you're going to sell online, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and a lot of them maybe more dragging their feet than you expect, but you know, you can transact through Instagram now, you know, you can tag your product mm-hmm. as you promote and it's not just, you have to do the hashtag and the link situation. Um, but so, wow. Okay. Let's back up. So, so just to make sure for a tear's way, uh, you, yeah. I would still, the reason why blogs in the past were important is because you had a concentrated, not necessarily echo chamber, but you had a concentrated stream of your message getting to people who resonate strongest with your message. And that is still something you would be pursuing with your brand. I would, right. I, get, I get a little bit more like bullish on this stuff and not for necessarily um, influencer marketing, but I, I am pretty bullish on if you really are an interesting brand and we have you know you and i both know some brands um companies that sell maybe one-off products but they are currently they're one one few products but they are very interesting on the branding side 
Mm-hmm. I am very bullish on you taking that seriously and actually engaging in creating content that is really consistent with your brand and outside of what mm-hmm. other people are doing. So you can take that both ways. Some people get super aggressive. So, for example, in your case, if you were showing uh, different kinds of protein and you're showing your benefits, in the past, you might just have like a chart that shows like, hey, all these you know boxes are checked and these are not. Mm-hmm. But I would say doing something equivalent to going to store shelves and showing how you know, you're looking down the store shelves and there's, I'll make it up at the time, but probably like uh, 800 different kind of protein products that are down the shelf of, you know, up and down all these big cases. And then yours, I would put like closest to me on the shelf and then put like a big green, uh, what's it called? Like frog tape, it's like painter's tape, like line between yours and theirs and be like us, them. And like ours mm-hmm. is so special and different that it's in a different part on the shelf and it's extremely different, right? It's like all the, right. yeah, we put a piece of tape to differentiate it in this picture that people can see. And I would, I would be much more than just words and talking to people. I'm really into interacting with people in the world in a way that resonates with them, that's consistent with your brand and goes above and beyond just paying someone to say something or show your product in, in a message. I think that's really important. So I would also... Yeah, I need to think more about your brand, but you know what? Are, I would go, I would definitely so, go uh, to uh, like so here's some things. Yeah, yeah, so so here's some things about the brand. So the brand, you know, when we launched, it was defensively unique around um, the health and wellness consumer because that that category didn't exist at the time, right? So our website had a woman on a beach doing, you know, Warrior Two, right, yoga pose on the beach. Um, now lots of brands position that way and what the brand positions around, if you go to the website now, it's the side of a white barn and they position around the fact that it's, um, transparent traceability, um, to artisan cheese plants and family farms, like that farm level Mm -hmm. traceability in the supply chain is what differentiates the brand now. So it's evolved over time. But that means there's all kinds of different stories, right? About right. about farming practices and artisanal cheesemakers and local food stuff that that is a whole nother rich vein for brand storytelling, right? So like when I hear that, I immediately think now this is you know kind of co-opting another story, but in general, are there any other protein brands that are co-opting the farm to table? like ethos mm-hmm. for protein. Yeah, if, you know, and, and the answer like, to that what is does that no. to do with protein? Right, right, yeah. right. What does that have to do with, like, but there's, reason, there's a really good reason for that, which is there are lots of other brands that go, no, no, I'm going to literally do drop shipping from manufacturers abroad and then literally, mm-hmm. you know, all my margins go into marketing and I'm just going to put the guy working out, you know, in the gym. Like, that's going right. to be either, you know, that, yeah. that's where you're competing with at the time. Like, oh my gosh. And no, so I was just having a conversation with, about branding with somebody else and, it's really important that the things you stand for, like don't make them the things you stand for where 10 minutes later, it's not like the other brands aren't also going to want to stand for those things, right? So if you right. say, well, we are the best tasting, well, who's going to say they're not the best tasting, right? Right, <laughs> like, how is right. That it's a not differentiating. In your case? Right. It's not differentiating. And you know, there's, there's some of the things that you differentiate with will be defensively unique, especially the more the process you control, the more you can have defensively unique. But mm-hmm. some of it is just differentiating and the rest of the market either doesn't know enough information about what that's going to do 
or just doesn't want to appeal. Like a lot of people who do dropshipping don't want to do this more complicated figuring out the weird niche, you know, not even super niche, but like niche ways of doing marketing because they it's too uncertain and that's not their business, right? Their business is they know what they're going to buy it for. They know what they're going to sell it for the margin between marketing and they're kind of competing with everyone else in that, in that vein. So I think for example, if I was speaking to a new company coming in with protein who really worked with farmers for the whey protein and, you know, it was, it was byproduct before people like throwing out and now you're, you're upcycling it basically mm-hmm. is, you know, a whole terminology. You're the only, I'd say you're the only upcycled, I don't know if it's true, but I'd go into like, we're the only upcycled protein uh, yeah. product. We're the only farm to table, even though the table isn't, you know, literally exact, but you can have the milkshake. Sorry, I guess I make like a milkshake out of it. Um, I'd have it in a glass looking beautiful on my table. Like the only farm to table, you know, mm-hmm. protein powder or protein shake. And, and then where would I go? All the messaging, you know. Yeah. So assume we got all the messaging, all the marketing, all the strategies and then. Uh, now I need to know, okay, what platforms am I going to sell on and what platforms am I going to use to promote? So what would you say to that? Yeah, beautiful. So with going with Tara's way, yeah. Um, and this is, this is actually a great question also because it points to the strength and weaknesses of all these platforms. So for example, on Amazon, you know, you wouldn't want to say your title to be, titles are very important for the keywords. You wouldn't say want it to be like, Farm table protein shake or protein right. powder because I mean theoretically there is a really small I don't know well, Amazon's huge so small could still be big like I have no idea what people are searching for that and I would have to go type that in and look for some analytics on that but my guess is like people are not searching on Amazon for farm they don't even know to search for that information right right it's, they don't know it even exists truly so you really gotta. What you got to highlight on those platforms would be something along, much more along the lines of like zero. Someone might be searching, you know, zero steroids, zero you know, antibody, whatever you know you thought was most important at the time. That you think people actually are searching for mm-hmm. that searching for to buy. So it's the most important thing for Amazon, like searching for to buy. Right. If I was going with the branding messages, hundred percent. I mean, like I said before, I would be looking at where people spend most of their time for social media, I would be diving into the educational resources that people are going to for farm to table. And they may never have done promotion before, right? They may mm-hmm. not be like promotion accounts, to be honest. That's also when things get really interesting is when you're approaching um, platforms and venues who disseminate educational information that resonate with your brand. Yeah. And you go, I resonate so much with your, like your brand resonates so much with me. How do we work together? And they go, we don't do that and go, but how do I, how do we work together? We want the same world. We're trying mm-hmm. to create the same world. Right. And getting, you know, for like Steve Jobs, for Apple, like think different, trying to get some of those pictures, the copyright permission to do some of those pictures. Yeah, there are people who are never going to give rights to any other company to do those pictures for things different. And he's like, no, this is the world, you know, at least marketing wise, this is the world I want to create let us have rights to this. Let us try to disseminate mm-hmm. this message. So I would just in today's world, um, trying to grow Tara's way. I w- trying to be defensively unique and distinguish yourself on that message, but I think it's totally worth a try to see what would happen. I would definitely dive as deep as possible into all the nooks and cranes of the internet. And the way this happens is you literally open up Google, you end up, you Google, you open, you type in like farm to table blog, farm to table, social media accounts, farm to table, uh, e-commerce, and you click almost every link you think is relevant up to page 9 or 10, you open mm-hmm. up new tabs, 
for all of them. It seems like you don't know what you're doing. It's a huge waste of time. But this is how you discover where the conversations are. After. You know, it's going to be on Reddit. There's going to be Reddit right. for like sub subreddits about people talking about the best practices for farm to table farming at farm to table. You know, like right. how do we how do we do this better? You're going to talk to the farmers. You're going to be and how do you inject yourself into all these conversations where there are natural, organic conversations occurring? It's uh, grassroots. Maybe I'll use that term because right now we're in food, so natural, organic. Yeah. I think there are all these grassroots conversations happening that resonate with this very, in my mind currently, but I haven't done any background research on it, like very differentiated, interesting message in protein. Like who is saying farm to table for protein? Right. Like, what is that? You know? Right. Who's not like selling steaks or something, right? So that is very interesting and differentiated. And that's where I would go. And that's where I would go initially, especially. So that's how you it, would find out if, if like on the promotion side, if it, sh- it w- if it would be Reddit, right? Like, cause there's always like, you're trying to figure out, well, where, where am I going to do digital promotion? If I, so say I have my product on Amazon, but you still have to, yes, it's about search and everything else, but you still have to do promotion online digitally. Right. And that so the, becomes like, God, it's huge. I don't know where to start. So actually, the, the step I just was describing, yep. it's more of like an R&D step to figure out what messaging is actually resonating with customers. Okay. So yep. when I say like dive into these, because uh, I'm saying you're starting from scratch, right? So I'm not saying you really have all the experience you have now. I'm saying yeah, you right. create this brand. And you're like, how do I create, like, where, how do I get it in the world? You have an idea of what you think this brand is going to be. And let's say it's like farm to table protein yep. um, powder. And I would start injecting myself into the grassroots conversation so that, I can see how these people who actually really care about these messages respond. And mm-hmm. the way they see them respond is you're going to start seeing, you know, I'm data driven. So I start, you know, creating tables of all these responses of things that were posted, where they were posted. And I would start seeing, what are these people saying in response? Like, yeah, but you don't do this or yes, but you do this or wow, this is great. You're doing this. And the things they're telling me we don't do yet, or mm-hmm. it's so great that we do those words, those phrases, that's what I start using. That's what I'm like, you know, I'm starting to sow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reaping from this harvest of, of research. I'm trying to reap and figure out what are the words and the phrases that are resonating with these demographics for this novel brand picture. Once I have that, then I would start going, okay, you know, once I think I have words that are relevant, so again, maybe, maybe an out of this farm to table protein comes out, right? You started off saying, hey, I work with farmers and I'm doing this like from the source and it's other people going, wow, this is great. It's farm-to-table protein powder, you know, and you're like, that is a phrase I need to know. That's when I would start to engage with, okay, how many people actually care about this kind of thing? So I would take, that's when I would start to try to figure out, like, engagement level. So I would go to, honestly, like, PowerPoint at this this point and start whipping together maybe a picture of a very nice milkshake sitting on, you know, what looks like a farm kitchen table, saying something like, the only farm-to-table protein powder, if this is something mm-hmm. that the research that you just done kind of points you in, phraseology-wise. Yeah. And then that's what I use in my raw material, going, okay, Facebook, let's see what this looks like when I expose, you know, this, I'll expose it to 100,000 people living in these areas, maybe, which we get into. I know you have a lot of experience going, listen, you know, people want to buy this or in these areas or these areas, you know, geographically. But just say, mm-hmm. I want to I solicit people who really care about farm-to-table food, you know, natural food, healthy lifestyle, but really you're like over-indexing on this farm-to-table, like yeah. from-the-store stuff, stuff that other protein companies probably aren't doing. 
And I would post this link and the link when you click it, sorry, I post this picture, for example, on Facebook and to Instagram. By post, I mean promote it, sorry, on their platforms. And I would have it so when they click, it goes to your website. I honestly wouldn't try to use it to do any transactions at that point. I would just try to see. So, I, you know, when they get to your website, you're not selling product at margin is always great. But what you need to do is really figure out step by step what are the concrete steps you can take to get a successful business. And so my whole story here is you think you have an idea about a brand, go inject yourself into the grassroots conversations there. See what's resonating, what's not resonating. The things that are resonating, extract those things, try to create phraseology around them, and try to draw from them brand images, create you know, copy associated with that, and then expose that to people in those demographics on social media, because from your room, it's the easiest thing for you to do, let's say. Mm-hmm. Easiest in quotes here, it's always a pain, but you get it out there and have it an active link that when they click it, just as any ad would, it goes to your website. If people buy, that's great, but don't don't worry about people buying right now. Worry about how many people who see it actually click. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to know. And if a bunch of people are, you know, there are statistics about whether you want over 2% or like 10% of people who you think are in your most active cohort clicking. And if you have Facebook Pixel set up here in Google Analytics on your website set up, you can start to see who are the people who are actually clicking on this thing. Approximately, who are they? You can get mm-hmm. some some demographic information. Facebook keeps most of it behind like a walled garden, but you can still continue to use that information behind the walled garden to hone future messages. And that is a way of just testing whether your brand is resonating at all actually with people online. Mm-hmm. If you find that like the number of people clicking over time, it takes time for the algorithm to learn what kind of people to click on it and search for them. If you find that that kind of phraseology is working, you know, based on benchmark to statistics, you can Google for what is a good benchmark for click-through statistics on Facebook ads, for example. Right. I mean, you find that you're getting comparable to a message that's resonating, just statistically speaking. You, you can always hope for better, but this is your first play at it, so just do the best you can. If you see, wow, we're actually getting good statistics here on people clicking through, that's a good sign about you moving forward to the next phrase, which is, okay, I'm seen to be having some kind of messaging that's resonating, some kind of picture that's resonating with people. But now they get to my website, how long are they staying? Where are they going on my website? How long are they staying here? When are they transacting? Maybe they're not actually, maybe they're on your website, you can tell by Google Analytics, for like 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 50 seconds, and then they leave. Okay, mm-hmm. that's not great. But is your product then also on Amazon? And then do you get transactions on Amazon after they leave your website? Very typical. Right. That people will go to your website and leave. That's still a win. You know what I mean? You can learn that kind of stuff. Um, and so your in your Amazon page might actually be awful at this point. You might it might be what I told you before. You spend the two days to get things together and just try to like right. be present. But if someone comes to your website and you have a very differentiated message, this farm to table protein powder. You know, again, I haven't even Googled this right now. I'm not sure what's gonna happen. But if you if you did, if someone Googles that and then they go out on Amazon, and they do that, and you you're able to see some Amazon analytics too, and go, okay, people are trying to buy on Amazon or they have come to my, more people are coming to my Amazon page, but they're not buying Mm -hmm. still good information. That's telling you, you're starting to resonate with some, you know, underlying thread of a market need that's going on. And then, you know, the best thing you can do ever is try to get a transaction to happen with a customer, either on Amazon or on your website. And as soon as that happens, especially the early customers, oh my goodness, contact them immediately. Now, on Amazon, they make it very difficult for you to do this for reasons that are not pertinent to, like, if there's a problem with your order or whatever, but try to contact them immediately if they're direct to a consumer website. And 
be like, why did you buy this? Just spill the beans. It doesn't matter. I know they're your one precious customer and you don't want to lose them again. And everyone's been in that situation where you think they're the best person ever. But the, they are the, they're, they're a sample of one, so be a little careful. But that person who actually spent money trying to buy your product, even with a pre-order of your product, if you didn't even, weren't even willing to sell it at that moment, that is like the most you need to talk to that person. So uh, grassroots, get into the conversations, try out your brand message. Right. Once you find some phraseology that seems to be working, con- construct some copy and image around that. Expose that on social media to the demographics on both like Instagram, for example, if it's food-related, it's very important for Instagram. Try on Facebook as well to select right. subpopulations of people that you think you'll resonate with. And then as soon as you get, make sure that your statistics are good, that are coming to your website, for example, or even just click through of the link that are relevant statistically to show that your phraseology is resonating with people. And then what you're trying to do at that point is talk to those people as soon as possible, as soon as possible. The internet exposes you to the entire world. It exposes you obviously to the entire United States, especially if you're operating your business here. And you need to get those people to tell you something as soon as possible. So you can't get a transaction if you're too scared or there's reasons why you can't get them to transact either on Amazon or on your website. For example, you don't even have your product yet or whatever's going on. You're really trying something from scratch or you don't feel comfortable with it. Putting a crazy promotion that pops up as soon as they land on your website going like, you guys are email address, we'll send you 10 buckets for free. Something. Because I promise you the price of that customer's like actual response, the potential customer's actual response I mean, it's priceless. I value information extremely highly, especially when you're operating online to be competing with businesses all over the world where you don't even know where they're operating and they're selling products in the United States. Um, you need good information. It's gold. Right. So you go, okay, we get this kind of store. If it's like a, a co-op, we kind of know who are is the demographic, who shops at the co-op and psychodemographics. So then you use that for going into Facebook. Yes. And, you know, that tells you about like products. So what kind of products do people also buy? So on mm-hmm. Amazon, for example, there's lots of ways that you do promotion and um, like targeting ads in quotes here, but just mm-hmm. promotion spend across the board. And some of them are, you know, what, when someone's looking at what kind of product, you know, X, when they're looking at X, you want them to also see your product. And right. it's not always as obvious as protein shake. It might be, in fact, the less obvious it is, the if it's accurate information and it's less obvious, the better, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's something your competition is not doing. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people are not talking to their customers. So if you actually talk to your customers, you find out they shop at, you should find out what kind of retail they shop at, even if they, don't, aren't, even if they are someone who's direct-to-consumer. Like, do you, what kind of retail do you shop at usually? And you find out it's mostly like Walmart or something. That's not super valuable information. But if you find out it is kind of niche that can mm-hmm. be super valuable because you can back out from that. Ooh, how do I, what products, use on Amazon should I be targeting that those customers are buying direct from Amazon for, you know, indirect from manufacturer for, and I should go after them too for those products. So if you are a protein product, there are obvious things, but what are the unobvious things that those customers want farm to farm to table? Okay, this is great. So you would not, um, I'm not sure Amazon sells farm to table meat, but like that is actually the kind of thing that someone would search to buy, right? They wouldn't just say mm-hmm. meat. They'd be like, no, I want farm to table, whatever, meat or something like that. Like zero, you know, steroid meat. Okay. That's when you might go, I'm going to target. Every time someone says that, I want my product also to show up. Right. And the other protein people, 
they probably aren't even on that. You know, that's not even their radar of what they're going right. after. You know, they're not even thinking about that at all right now. Yeah. So re- with rally, what did you find that nobody else knew? I'm not sure if any. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure if I'm sure if any. I'm not sure if no one else knew it. Um, things that I encountered that were interesting yeah. to me that I felt like other people were denying as truth, but mm-hmm. end up really being truth. Mm-hmm. Um, was that people index very high on okay, a couple of things, just super interesting. So people index very high on having a product that works quickly. Like when uh-huh. they are, there are people who want to have a slow picking up throughout the day. And there are people who are just tired sitting at their desk. And honestly, they couldn't, if they could snap their fingers, it would be good. They don't care about right. the flavor of coffee or tea or Red Bull. They just want to snap their fingers and be awake. And they didn't have in their minds a solution that they could snap their fingers and make happen like magic. Right. So could you deliver that magic? And what I was encountering were lots of people going, no, no, no. It's actually like the, they had their own, uh, I think it was cognitive distance to some degree happening with my competition, but also there's people um, in their minds make sense of whatever they see around them. So people go like, no, no, no. I like, you know, in the middle of the day, uh, me taking a break and sipping my coffee. A lot of people do. I get it. You'll find a segment of those people didn't. They just were because that's what was available to them. Right. Honestly, it's very interesting. Right. So you'd right. be like, you know, they would fight you on it and you go, but here, try one of these when you're tired and then get back to me. And they try right. one of the tires and like, whoa, I didn't realize this exists. You know? Right. And you just cut through it. In fact, that's like my, my number one thing that I love is finding it when people are trying to convince you. And you should listen to them because you know, many times you're going to be right. But say if you think you have like a secret truth and just hearing everyone be like, no, it's not right. Everyone's doing this thing. If you have a good reason to believe that secret truth, you better have a way of testing it. But when you test it and you see it working, mm-hmm. that's incredible. I can't tell you how validating that is. Another so thing that's really interesting I bet is... People, I bet people, once they discover that about your mints, are super loyal to your product. Oh, they love it. They love that. And we could go into that forever. So... You know, we we uh, we have very strong metrics on making our product work. Right, we formulated specifically to make mm-hmm. the product work quickly. Uh-huh. We did not even index. We did not even over-index on flavor. And you might be like, "But Matt, your food, you need to index like right, on flavor." Right. No, we found that people responding were going, "I take it, it works. That's awesome." Our first versions were awful. We made them yeah. in, the, in the pilot plant at the University of Wisconsin when we were we were. We were doing everything legally, but like we didn't yeah. know how to actually refine flavors or do anything. Right. But the one thing those things did was they worked quickly, and that's mm-hmm. who the repeat customers were. Now, what we found online internationally, of course, we tried like every competing product you can imagine, and we do so routinely, is that there were a lot of products that had you know tableted or like chewable gums or something internationally before Wrigley ever got into it or anyone else that were had caffeine in them. But if you look at the mm-hmm. caffeine content, either it was encapsulated in such a way that you couldn't taste it very well, which meant uh, it tasted better, but right. it had a delayed effect. Or right. it didn't have a delayed effect, but it had so little caffeine that it's still, they, they're indexing very hard on flavor and not on, right. let's say, um, uh, the effect. So we indexed hard on that, and that's what our repeat customers were all about. Right. Um, and then as we've had time now to improve the flavor uh, through what's now five iterations of our peppermint flavor, we kept, we made sure that was constant. Right. It's just amazing from the customer standpoint. Like, that's what they cared about. That's what they wanted. Because honestly, there are lots of things you can sit in your, your recliner and drink. Right. And they'll maybe make you piss a lot more, go to the bathroom a lot more. 
But in general, they're enjoying like the caramel mochiato, whatever situation. Right. And that's okay. That there, There's a place in the market for that. What's interesting enough is that there's a place in the market for a magic thing that when you snap your fingers, you feel awake right away. Which, right. On retrospect, I should tell you, seems obvious. But in the face of it, when you're talking to people who drink coffee all the time, because that was their maybe coffee or energy drink, that was the only option. Things are super hyped up in sugar and whatever. Right. Just, like, but I have these other options. And once you show them the magic, they can't believe they don't want to live without it, basically, as, as an option when they want that thing. Right. Another thing that's really interesting is just broadly speaking, people's bias or expectation that people, lots of people do love coffee and coffee is a huge market. Energy drinks are also a huge market for a certain reason. But the, the thought that young people, young people being over 18 at least, because um, we only target, any marketing materials we do are always over 18. All of our demographics or anything are always over 18. We take that very seriously. But, um, and that's a whole other thing. But one of the things that we focused on um, early on was like, you know, these people are going to college for the first time or trade school. They're getting um, loaded up with lots of responsibilities. Usually they're both, they're burning the candle at both ends and they're experimenting with caffeine for the first time, whether it be coffee or energy drinks, whatever. A lot of these people are. And a lot of the pressure we got on early on was, but people love coffee. Like coffee is delicious and people like coffee and it's good enough. And, and these are not from customers. These are from other people when you're pitching, right? Yeah. And I got to tell you, what's really interesting is you go and go ask a college freshman how much they love coffee. And you know what they'll tell you? Like, yeah, I love the, and they'll tell you the drink that's basically a milkshake. Right. Right. That comes out of Starbucks, for example. Right. And that tells you a lot about how much people love coffee or do they love caffeine? Right. You know, they love the, they love what coffee gives them and allows them to do. They don't necessarily learn to love coffee. It's very much like alcohol where really bitter alcohols tend to be people who enjoy that, people who have drank alcohol for a long time, right? Who enjoys really right. bitter coffee? People who tend to have acclimated to the different flavor notes and stuff in different coffees over time. So do you, um, how much time, because this is like an enormous thought process plus the execution of it. So how much time do you spend, so your company is, you know, half retail and half um, digital. How much time is being spent by either you or other people or people you contract with to be working on your online sales? Because I ask that question because a lot of people that I work with, part of the reason their online, their forays into online sales have not worked is that they don't, they don't have the time and they don't, you know, and it's time you have to learn how to do this too, right? Um, so they don't mm -hmm. have the time. And then they'll, maybe they'll hire somebody who knows how to do digital marketing, but not necessarily for food. And then that doesn't work really well. And um, mm -hmm. so they're not investing either money or timing in it. And then people don't find you. Mm -hmm. So you are doing this a lot. <clears throat> so how much time do you spend? Yeah, let me tell you, it definitely changes based on what stage you are at. So right okay. now we have things that are operating on Amazon that, and other other channels, as I explained, like FAIR or Hubba or all these other places, where we have established, we've already set up accounts, we've already, you know, instead of our marketing materials, we've already kind of gotten everything going. And so now for a place like Amazon, for example, which is the most relevant marketplace for many people, it might be something like, if things are going as usual, it's not Black Friday or whatever situation that right. things get nuts anyway. It might be like an hour every other day to every two days. You spend a mm -hmm. full hour just on the platform thinking about what's going on. 
And then mm-hmm. you, you will spend maybe another hour in the same two to three day period strategizing, just, just looking at the rest of your business, thinking about stuff, you know, going, okay, what do I need to do? How should I be right. reacting? What should I be thinking about for Amazon? And that is the, probably the least amount of time. And, and then it's active time. So I'm not going to say it's, oh, some people are like, oh, it's just an hour every three days. And you're like, okay. And they think they can fit into their schedule, but then you look at their schedule and the schedule is already packed with things they think don't take up their time, right? right so it's like right. that's actual time that you need to figure right. out how to do. So two hours every three days in your schedule to dedicate to this. And you can't just be glancing at it for two seconds. Right. That is, yeah, Amazon. And I would say for the other channels that do wholesale, things tend to be slower paced, but also a little bit simpler. Um, it might be like an, at least an hour and a half to two hours a week. So maybe mm-hmm. one to two hours every five days. We're checking up yeah. on everything and, and doing that. Then for social mm-hmm. media, which plugs into how all this works because you always, you're always linking out, yeah. that might be – so for social media marketing and thinking about content generation or continuing conversations or applying to conversations online, and all this is together, right? That's part of the problem is that people think like it's very tiny little piecemeal. It's all part of this holistic right. how do I operate online world. That mm-hmm. is – is a much larger time stuck. And it, almost it should right. be, to be honest, because that's how your brand is being present online. And that could easily be three hours of like solid execution throughout the week and probably in one sprint, like three hours solid generating a content or engaging in conversation or doing something, iterating on it, trying to follow up with it. And then probably another hour and a half throughout the week. So probably five hours maybe throughout a seven-day period some mm-hmm. of that could be on a weekend because the internet's happening all the time. So yeah. all, all in all, it's at least a full day of a week is dedicated, you know, aggregating those things just to mm-hmm. doing and maintaining that. And by the way, that's with, you know, Amazon fulfilling my orders. That's with um, our co-packer helping us package and, you know, ship out all of our orders to the people that matter. That's with me literally just talking about the management that um, me and the people I work with will use to manage these things. And think about right. uh, social media content and what we're doing. Right. That's not trivial. Right. You know, most people, no, you only have trivial. five to 20% of your time. And, and you if, know if what you you're were doing, you were right? doing, sorry. Yeah. So it takes you that amount of time and you know exactly what you're doing. Um, you know, it, there'll be a learning curve for people. So it'll be more time when they're just starting. And then all that planning, if you want to call it planning, but experimentation, experimental planning, however you want to talk about it, you're, that process that you articulated for how to figure out what your what your strategy is, right? That's a lot of time, you know, to, to execute Absolutely. that part, right? That's the front end time. Look, I'd love to talk about that for a moment, which is actually some of those. So yes, across the board, yes, on everything you said. And what I want to emphasize is some of this stuff, like when I said you originally go into these conversations, the like the natural grassroots conversations and inject yourself and try to understand what's going on in these conversations. Yeah. Those are things that take time, not only to do them, but it takes time for people to reply and for you to see how the whole thing's evolving. Right. So sometimes people will put off things like engaging online and then they go, okay, let's go do something. And I go, okay, it's going to be like a two month process as you're just trying to figure out phraseology. And like, well, I'm, you know, I can just go and figure it out. If you go and think you're figuring it out, you're taking a snapshot in time. You're not, you're not bouncing your ideas off actual people who matter in this space, and you're probably going to be just producing garbage. It, if you think you want to do something in the next three months, start immediately trying to do something now, and every mm-hmm. moment after now, you'll only be getting better. 
but don't think you're going to come out of the, you know, out of the gate with exactly the phraseology and brand that makes the most sense as differentiated and defensively unique, right? It takes time. Right. And then for online stuff, absolutely great websites. If you start from scratch and I mean, you're someone who really has never built a Shopify website before, a Squarespace website before, there are great tutorials online, but as mm-hmm. I'm, by great, I mean, I'm someone who knows, I'm someone who knows how to do a fair amount of this just from my background. And I'm pretty competent in like the language that people use and how to navigate online. Even for me, just setting up everything, it's setting up everything in a way that I look at it. It's at least Mm -hmm. a week and a half of solid, solid work of you going, I'm not even making product out of this work yet. I'm just creating the thing that's going to do it. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's amazing. I do. I do. And then, you know, and that's daunting for people who aren't, as um you know tech tech savvy as you are so um but but i think i think there is hope that you you and other people that i work with who have up and running digital businesses um will say similar things that once you get things set up and of course every platform like they're not it's not they all have their own special things so it's like you have to relearn the whole thing every time um, but once mm-hmm. you get set mm-hmm. up, there's some hope that it can go into a phase where it's more of a manageable time commitment, right? Yeah. The, yes. And I hear this a lot. My caveat to that being, you know, the, the my caveat to like status quo being achieved and then you coast is yeah. that we live in the society where there's competition. And so right. eventually the people who maybe in the past more people know all the time they should be competing online and the, ba- the, the barriers to entry for competing online in a lot of ways, just competing. I'm not saying succeeding online, but we all know like right. the, the cost of the social brand is going up, but the cost to enter is going down. Right. So the, the competition is increasing. So what happens is no matter what you end up doing, uh, eventually you're going to find people competing with you. And the only way you're going to have to adjust your strategy continuously. That's why yeah. you're checking every other day for at least an hour, right. trying to plan, see where you're spending your money, where are they spending their money? You know, how effective has this been? Maybe try something new, try to find new phraseology, try to figure out new products that are quote unquote like products of people that would buy this might also buy your product. You're always trying to like, look where your customers, where your competition is not. Mm-hmm. And if you think that's, you know, I mean, and that's the way, honestly, the whole world just is, and even retail to some degree, one of the reasons why someone might feel like they have accounts of retail that kind of coast is because like retail, yeah. as you would know, is a big pain often to get into and manage and get to that level. And so there's still a relatively huge barrier to entry to do that. Right. And a lot of people don't want to do it. It's like very right. expensive and, and the pain for a lot of people. Right. So if you, that's why that mentality, people who maybe came in thinking from, old brick and mortar retail, they could do that online. Historically, right. that might have been more the case as there was less competition online, to be honest. Yeah. So people would be like, hey, I have a good Amazon store. It's all good. My competition's not here. I'm going to sit back and like, drink my ties for a while. Um, they That might have existed you know, 10 years ago, but it may if it doesn't exist yet in your category, it will exist. Mm-hmm. If it exists right. still in your category, it will exist less and less and less. So it's it's category. more dynamic, put it that way, right? So it's an ever-evolving thing. So you Definitely. found the the yeah. words that work are going to evolve much faster, which is challenging, right, yeah. for, for brands. I mean, yeah, I mean, you work so hard to align yourself with one set of words, right? And then, you know, positioning in, in the way that you position and then, 
um, and then you have to evolve. And I, I tell people rich brands have value propositions that are deep so that if something happens, you can go somewhere else. So Tara's way, you know, we went from the health and wellness consumer to this farm to table thing, if you want to call it that, that, I mean, if mm -hmm. that, what that was, it, it was always in the value proposition of the brand. It's just that that was not um, in the, in a hierarchy of the brand. That was not what was compelling 10 years ago, whereas now it's becoming what is compelling, right? So, um, so great brands have depth like that. So, so um, how long, if, how long did it, I mean, it took you like three years, it sounds like to get to the level mm -hmm. of, um, I'll use the word sophistication that you have about, um, about working online. E-commerce. E-commerce, yep. yeah. Um, and, and is that, I mean, is that kind of what you would say would be like average for people to just say, look, if you're going to do this, it's a commitment. You're going to learn over time, try it, but we, you're in this for three years to really get it rocking and rolling. No, I think you can do it much faster. I think okay. you can. I was emphasizing significantly early on and still you know, do relative to other brands. You know, the fact that I, I'm a relatively you know, young person with young brand. Um, the fact that I still am biasing uh, retail by about 50%, yeah. it, I think that is relatively uh, minority of the group of people that at least I've interacted with. Um, yeah. A lot of more of it is digital. So I think if you really emphasize I need to get this right. I'm going to try to do this. You are always going to have a barrier of your process will get better as you get more data and data takes time to accumulate. But mm -hmm. I think you can get a brand going, going on a flywheel of understanding and data in four months, mm -hmm. four to six months. That is more, much more reasonable if you say, I'm going to, either sink in the resources to be working with someone who's a professional who knows what they're doing, um, or I'm going to be doing it myself, but really doing it yourself, not just I'm doing it myself and I actually only cut out, you know, half a day once a week to do it. Right. You know, you really got to get up to speed and you got to be watching this. And when you have a question about what a button does, you Google immediately what that question does, you know, what that button right. does and try to figure it out because you are trying to make it work. And then it's possible for you to right. get to a place where, there's kind of a coasting that goes on, a kind of an right. understanding of what, what you do and do not need to emphasize. Um, if you need to react, there's, you know, maybe how not to overreact, you know, things like that. Right. And what, what causes long-term, so there's also like what causes long-term damage on the platform. There's right. things you can do that you think will be helpful to you, but they are not, they're going to, the platforms like ding you, you know, in ways you mm -hmm. can't control. And so that's really important as well is you got to figure just all that out. And I think right. someone who really focuses in, at least, not less than three months for sure, but someone right. who goes maybe to six months, maybe four to six months, you can do that. And it's so a valuable skill set, right? So if you are, achieve that, you can do that for lots of other people too, potentially, which is useful sure. for other people looking at stuff. So if you are talking to somebody who um, had their business just get decimated by COVID and they weren't online... Um, before and now they're trying to pivot and go online. What would you? So you're 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 saying devote 100 percent of your time, really learn this stuff. You can get it on in four months. But well, oh, so that was like you know uh, I mean? for like Amazon you're, specifically. You're just I like, think there, there are other places you could do it in 
four days and get something going, uh, depending so on what where? your business is, of course, and what you're selling. Yeah, but um, so, so like where? like fair.com or something like that, or hubba.com or tundra.com or um, Mabel is a new one as well. These are all direct-to-retailer type of uh-huh. situations, but where they're relatively easy to do. On eBay is easy to do. I mean, the Etsy is easy to do. You know, maybe three days of work if you don't have your, uh, like, marketing materials put together. Once you start right. setting these up, you start creating, you know, files on your desktop that you just go to and get your stuff. But those are right. much easier things to do. I would really recommend for anyone who had a business that was operating pre-COVID and we just don't know when this is all going to kind of get to the other side of this. I, the first thing I'd recommend they do is Google their product online, see who's selling it online mm-hmm. in any way. Like even if they think that you can't sell it online, Google it. Say, oh, right. who's doing? how are people selling this online? How are they doing it? And I don't care if it's as different as them teaming up with other people who send boxes out or it's them making gift wrapping with, you know, other countries who have holidays, different times, just create a list again, data driven, create a list of all the ways in which other businesses that existed pre COVID were honestly having found money because you weren't even competing that way. Right. And then if you really are operating your business and you're trying to survive as a person in this world, um, operating your business and you have no other way of operating your business post COVID I would say just relentlessly copy their strategies like crazy. It's you have no other way of teaching yourself what you're going to be doing. You're probably alone with one other person trying to figure out how to make the business survive. So go, they have a Shopify site. I'm going to set up a Shopify site. I'm going to go look at how to set up a Shopify site. Uh, They seem to have fulfillment by this. I need to go figure out maybe that's the best pricing. Maybe that's not the best pricing. I need to go figure this out immediately. You You set up windows, you start Googling this. You create a notepad on the side of your computer that goes, I need this and this and this and this. And by need, I mean this seems to be what this other business that's operating has used to operate relatively successfully. Be a little careful. A lot of these businesses may not be very successful, and they're just kind of like out there. So try to find one that looks like it's selling a bunch of stuff or is like vibrant in some way, and then try to you know, create a structure off of that that you can fill in with your own brand, with your own resources, mm-hmm. and chase as, as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Right. So if it's literally like a life and death for your business situation. Yeah, yeah. So this is the um, okay. We're gonna do what's quick and quick and dirty. And the the philosophy here then is we get up, we get something up and running. Maybe with with Etsy or eBay or Mabel Fair, Hubba, Tundra. Do that first. Um, and copy your competitor's strategy. Just the, just copy it because you that'll be fast. And then you can always get more differentiated and optimize later. Absolutely. You have no idea what works, presumably, if you, if I'm trying right. to, this is the uh, table stakes was, this person has no idea what works online, they weren't online. So right. you need to go and get as close to truth as possible to start exploring the space, the, the mm-hmm. landscape, and find like your brand's truth there. And so I would say targeting what you think another brand has done, uh, and building your structure around that and going, you don't want to feel, I think, at all like self-conscious about this. The only reason why people think that they can start a restaurant is because they see other people operating restaurants and they're like, that's how right. I guess I have a business. And when it's seeing something sold in retail, it's like, no, I'm going to make my business and I'm going to sell it in retail. It's like, great. You're, you are just copying like the structure that everyone else is using. This just happens to be online. You know, don't steal someone else's images or something, but like you can look at this and go, all right, I'm going from zero to one as quickly as possible so that we at least have a place to reference when we start figuring out where we can stand here, you right. know? And, right. Yeah, I would say just take your ego, throw it under the bus, and get 
get going. And, right. And I'm talking to you from a perspective of someone who knows people who are, you know, who are hurting and not just trying right. to sit back in a lounge chair and go, how can I make this work? They are hurting. They want to make something work. They need to make something work. Right. So find something that works, strap your company onto it, and iterate from there. 100%. Right, 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 right. right. Exactly, exactly. So um, there's so much to talk about. Um, we may have to have you on the show again <laughs> because there's even more to talk about. But, um, yeah, and, and we can come on post-COVID because I do think that um, I'm starting to talk about, like, B.C. and A.C., so B.C. being not before Christ, B.C. being before right. COVID, <laughs> and, and A.C. is not uh, electrical current. It is after COVID. Um, because I, I think that, um, we're going to come out of this with way more people buying food online than ever before. Right. With, with some right. of these newer platforms, hopefully getting more robust so that the entire food system doesn't shift now to, you know, Costco and Amazon. <laughs> um, so, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about content, we worry about concentration in the food industry in the bricks and mortar side of it, but, but the concentration, it pales compared to the concentration in digital. So we'll have to talk some more when we, um, uh, in another, in another episode. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, obviously comparing, contrasting, uh, figuring out what happened during what has worked and other, not worked for yeah. other companies that we know, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it'd be great because you, you have a, um, you have this amazingly methodical way of approaching how you manage your business, and certainly how you are managing the digital side of your business that I think so many people can learn from. So thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll talk again soon. I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you so much yep. for having me. Of course. Bye. Right. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.